0: Part 1 of an interview with ventriloquist Jay Johnson. From Soap, stay tuned. Hello once again, and welcome to another edition of the TV Series Finale Podcast. It is August 1st in the year 2008, and I am your host, Trevor Kimball. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, thanks very much for joining me once again. And if this is your first time listening... I want you to know that this podcast is part of tvseriesfinale.com, a website that's devoted to talking about the last episodes of various TV shows, reunions, and revivals. I have something special for you today, part one of an interview with ventriloquist Jay Johnson. Now, Jay has been performing and on television for quite a while and is tops in his field. If you want to see his talent, you can check out clips of his performances on Jay's website, monkeyjoke.com. In 2007, Jay and his one-man, multiple-character show, The Two and Only, won a prestigious Tony Award after a run on Broadway. As impressive as that is, the reason for our interview today is Jay's role on the legendary 1970s sitcom called Soap. Soap was created by Susan Harris. Prior to the series... Harris had written episodes of All in the Family and one particularly memorable episode of Maud that entailed B. Arthur's liberal character wrestling with the decision to have an abortion when she accidentally becomes pregnant during middle age. The episode won a Humanitas Award. Harris later went on to create The Golden Girls, Empty Nest, and many other smart sitcoms. It is soap, however, that is Harris's crowning achievement as she wrote almost all of the scripts for the first couple of years. Soap follows the lives of two sisters, Jessica Tate and Mary Campbell, and their families. Jessica and Mary are quite close, while their families, well, they basically can't stand each other. The Tates are wealthy, while the Campbells are not. Jessica Tate, played by Catherine Helmond, who went on to play Mona on Who's the Boss, is a bit scatterbrained and lives with her philandering husband, Chester, Robert Mandan, and their three children, two adult daughters and one teenage son. Promiscuous Corinne, played by Diana Canova, is in love with her high school crush, who went on to become a priest. Snooty Eunice, played by Jennifer Salt, is having an affair with a married congressman. And teenage Billy, Jimmy Baio, just wishes he could live in a normal house. Jessica's father, a World War II major played by Arthur Peterson, was shell-shocked during the war and walks around thinking he's still in the war. And Benson, Robert Guillaume, is the Tate butler, and he barely tolerates all of the household shenanigans. Robert Guillaume went on to a spin-off series after two seasons on soap called Benson, in which his character went to work for Jessica Tate's cousin, uh, Governor Gatling, in the Governor's Mansion. As crazy as it is at the Tate house, the working class Campbell household doesn't have it much better. Sensible Mary, played by Catherine Damon, has recently married Bert, played by Richard Mulligan, who's a contractor. Bert is unable to make love to Mary because he feels guilty over having killed her first husband, who was a mobster that was blackmailing him, unbeknownst to Mary. Mary's two adult sons also live in the house, though neither can stand Bert. Danny, Ted Was, isn't too bright and works for the mob, while Jody, Billy Crystal, is gay a status that certainly wasn't very acceptable at that time. After seven episodes, Bert's adult son, Chuck, comes to stay with the family. Chuck is a ventriloquist and a nice, easygoing guy, played by Jay Johnson. Unfortunately, his wooden partner, Bob, is quite rude, and Chuck believes that Bob is real. The pair insist that they be treated as equals and just about everyone gets sucked into the fantasy at some point or another. Chuck and Bob have some of the most memorable and laugh-out-loud funny moments in the show. Soap was very controversial in its day, and all sorts of politically correct and religious right organizations led boycotts against ABC and the series before they had seen it, and before it had aired. Once the show did air much of the controversy died down and the show developed a cult following becoming a hit show unfortunately the series was canceled after four seasons and is now famous for having one of the most unresolved cliffhangers in television history given the show's offbeat storylines somehow leaving on a cliffhanger seems a little appropriate if like me you're a fan of soap you're in for a real treat with this interview. If you aren't familiar with the show, hey, do yourself a favor and rent or purchase the first season on DVD. I've never seen another show that can so easily shift from absurd comedy to real palpable emotion within moments. Uh, A lot of the credit has to go to the writing, obviously, and to the wonderfully talented cast. If you appreciate well-written and well-acted television, you'll be hooked by the fourth episode, and it only gets better from there. So here now is the first part of my interview with Jay Johnson. Let's start kind of at the beginning, and uh, if you could tell me how you got started in performing.
1: Well, uh, geez, it's a tough question, because um, I, don't, I don't remember a specific day when I woke up and said, wow, this would be fun to do. I, it's just something I always did, you know? Right. Um, I think as as kids, you uh, find a way to uh, garner attention or uh, get uh, compliments or something, whatever you do, whether it's misbehaving or trying to behave. Right. But but mine was always uh, performing in some way, and and I, I loved uh, puppets and that kind of um, kind of extension of my own reality there when I was a kid.
0: Right. Did you have any um, particular ventriloquist inspirations? Edgar Bergen, Paul Winchell.
1: Not initially. I, I, at least I don't remember. I, they were sure. Uh, you know, my in my Broadway show, I tried to figure that out and analyze when it was, and and I'm sure that at the time there were. Um, uh, ventriloquist on television that I would have seen and been aware of. I'm, I'm aware of the first time uh, my brother uh, said to me af- after we watched uh, a ventriloquist on, probably the Ed Sullivan Show, when I was, when I was quite young. Right. Uh, he said, "You know, of course, that guy is working that puppet." And he said, "Yeah, yeah, there, there's buttons in the back, and he makes all that that stuff with the prep. And it was the first time that I had realized. But that you know wasn't two people that was uh, actually uh, one guy working at and uh, so I remember that when I was very young but uh, um, past that I really don't know
0: um, now there was a story on your website that at age 11 you made your cousin's doll come to life
1: yeah that's that's also a big story in, in my uh, one man show as well uh, I I wanted uh, one of those old Jerry Mahoney uh, well they weren't old at the time um jerry mahoney ventriloquist dolls that they, that they sold through catalogs and it was it was maybe the toy of the year one christmas who knows but right um they were expensive and it wasn't really something that uh, you did for texas boys but but my cousin got one and maybe a couple of years later after they had been out i saw it on her shelf and i i just fell in love with it basically and started working with it
0: when did you discover that you that you liked ventriloquism
1: well, probably uh, the first time somebody said, "Wow, that's great," uh, and gave me a compliment. <laughs> you know, I mean, isn't that how we learn to do anything? You know? Yeah. No. Absolutely. Uh, and and you know, if if that day I had found a, a, a guitar on the shelf and, and was able to play it as well as I could do ventriloquism, I'd probably be writing rock music now. You know, who knows? Right. Right. But it it's just also it's also kind of wrapped up in in. How you get appreciated and and who uh, likes what you do and why they like it and all that circumstance. But uh, one thing for me is I've always liked to compete in areas where competition is uh, less strenuous. You know, I, I wanted sure, to ride a unicycle sure. rather than a bicycle because nobody did that. I wanted to be a ventriloquist because some very people did that. And, right. Um, so I think I always chose something that uh, was a little bit odd and you could. Uh, you could put yourself into it and stand out,
0: right? No, absolutely, and and what a great thing, especially if you want to be a performer. I mean, finding some way to differentiate yourself and stand out. Absolutely,
1: and and you know, I think that um, I think that ventriloquism is, has been underrated as a, a, an art form and a performance form, and what what tools you learn from it. I, I think that it's immediately dismissed as some sort of uh, plate spinning gimmick that really doesn't have a relevance to entertainment other than that's something you learn to do with your hands. Right. But when you think about it, if an actor could sit down and analyze the the reasons why a ventriloquist can make that character work, it's all about acting. It's all about finding that character. It's all about what that character thinks. It's it's embodying a, a another personality besides yourself and it's it's quite complicated and it's quite uh, uh, akin to classic acting in almost every form.
0: Sure, sure. But the wonderful thing about being a ventriloquist is you're not limited, like an actor is, to sticking mostly to a character that kind of looks like you, that, you know, has the same basic physical persona.
1: Yeah, it's true. Although, you know, with makeup and, and prosthetics and stuff, people can go very far from what they normally and traditionally could play. However, the difference between just acting and a ventriloquist actor is that the actor is required and in some cases um, enjoys the privilege of being the audience as well as the performer at exactly the same moment sure so if a character is talking in, in, in doing some comedy or some line for an audience, that ventriloquist is doing that line and performing that that speech but at exactly the same moment uh, he is perceiving it it is exactly the same way as the audience is so it's yeah it's a unique form of acting and reacting in exactly the same word.
0: Well, and wonderfully, too. I hadn't thought of it like that, and that's really interesting. Um, the other wonderful thing is that you're also your own scene partner, so to speak.
1: Oh, exactly. And and one of the things that um, I, I say all the time to people, uh, do a lot of corporate work where you write material for a corporation and it's specific to what they want, and they're very concerned that you might say something that would cross the line and, and you know. Right. Uh, they're always very worried about that. But what I always say to them, I say that this is the safest way that you can ever um, make comments on your your company because this little character that has a license to say anything he wants to, and and my my filter socially and my filter for your company are, are exactly in tune. We know exactly what each other's going to say before they say it, and we're not going to accidentally. You know, say something that the other one is not going to know how to get out of or get into. So,
0: like improvising with a perfect partner—that
1: it is a perfect partner. Yes,
0: who knows exactly where you're going to go?
1: Yeah, exactly. My favorite story is is on a—it's a, a joke—a uh, comedy team is on a on an ocean liner, and uh, the comic falls over the side with the straight man on the on the rail, and so the, the comic's over in the drink, and he's yelling, "Help! Help! I'm drowning!" And this, this the 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 uh, uh, the straight man looks down and says, "Help! Help! I'm drowning!" And that's what it is. You know, a comedy team has a certain rhythm that uh, that's always there.
0: Right. Right. No. Exactly. Now, you started in television, I believe, as a teenager.
1: Well, yeah, doing commercials in Dallas. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. It was um, at the time there was uh, a new car called a, a Rambler, which was uh, American Motors, I guess. And. One of the dealerships was uh, Sunshine Rambler, and they had a very interesting way of, of marketing their particular dealership. And uh, they had written some copy that that a DJ was just supposed to say. And I guess the owner of the um, the dealership saw me at some benefit and said, "Wow, this would be funny if you just did it with that character and kind of kept to these points." And and we did that, and we did I don't know twenty or thirty over the course.
0: Oh, that's great! Wow, what a great what a great opportunity. And did you do that? I believe while you were in high school.
1: Yes, I did. Yeah, and that wow. eventually led to a, a little show uh, on KTVT in in Dallas, which was a actually a Fort Worth station. But um, the the dealership then decided to buy some uh, a block of time on a Saturday morning, um, and I think they bought Jungle Jim that series, way back the old series, uh, with Johnny Weissmuller. Oh, uh, sure. Okay. So basically, in high school, I would do lead-ins and lead-outs to those uh, episodes of Jungle Jim, and uh, I think it was called The J.M. Squeaky Show, but I don't know how long it lasted. To being, I think my grades started to take a dive, and we, we had to cancel.
0: <laughs> now, if the Squeaky character that you did with that, is that... I'm not that familiar. I unfortunately haven't seen your stage show, but is Squeaky one of the characters in your show as well?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. He was, he was the character, and, and the show really is about, uh, well, it's hard to say what the show is about. We've never been able to define it very well, but um, it's about ventriloquism. It's, it's the arc of ventriloquism from the, the first recorded history we, we have it to where I think it's going to go, and at some point in this rainbow arc, Obviously, my life gets inserted into this uh, into this curve, and so right. the the two stories overlap to the degree that that's what I'm doing as as a profession. And Squeaky was always my character, and eventually I have a professional puppet made of Squeaky, and he becomes my my own charlotte McCarthy and Danny O'Day. And then when we came to audition for Soap, they decided that uh, that Squeaky was the wrong look to play the part, and they wanted to recast. So basically, I have to tell Squeaky that uh, I've got the job, and he doesn't. And right. So that scene we actually play out in the, in the play, and um, so yeah, Squeaky was was always my character, and and basically, um, I, I might say that that Squeaky grew up enough and became a little um, more cruel when he became Bob. You know, who knows?
0: That's great. Um, okay, well, since you brought it up, uh, soap, of course, you know, an incredible sitcom, revolutionary of its time, incredibly controversial.
1: It was, yeah, and
0: just an amazing show. It's it's got to be i think it's my favorite sitcom my favorite show of all time it just wonderfully well
1: it surely had a it surely had a loyal following back then and still does and and the one thing i think about soap is that uh, two things set it apart one was that uh, the writing was yeah. extremely good and second of all the the casting was was brilliant right looking back on those days there wasn't um a television actor that had uh um, Fabulous chops that wasn't on our show for three or four episodes. I mean, everybody that was any good in town did a guest shot, and maybe even a couple of weeks on soap. Right. It was just a an amazing array of watching uh, the best talent in Los Angeles work with you.
0: you Right. Right. Well, and looking at the episodes, you can even see in minor parts people who went on to you know that was like one of their first things that they ever did. Absolutely. And they just went on to to you know other wonderful things. Do you remember your audition for Soap? Oh, very well. Yeah, very well. Um, uh,
1: again, uh, we, we talk about that in the show. I'm glad to talk about it here. The uh, um, I had a deal. This is not in the show, but I had just signed a deal with a uh, yogurt company in um, Boston to become basically their trademark um, character. I was going to become the Pillsbury Doughboy sitting on my knee of their company. Okay. And it was a huge contract. It was more money than I've ever seen in my life, and I was ready to do it. And they kind of said, "Well, we're not ready to make this tour yet. We still have some promotional things we need to do before we start releasing this idea. And but I had a puppet made for them, and we we uh, we searched it, we did it, we had it all ready to go. And then it just sat there for a while. Yeah. And um, uh, there was a friend that called me and said that there was an ad in the in the Daily variety that said they were looking for a ventriloquist for a television uh, sitcom. So I couldn't believe it. So I found the ad, and indeed they were. And it was a, an open call, general audition. Anybody come down to Television City and audition. So,
0: Oh, my gosh. Wow.
1: So I really went, I went down there w- with the thought that, well, this will just be fun because this other contract, I, you know, I've already got this other contract, and I, I couldn't do this even if I got it. But, you know, why not? I'm a ventriloquist, and this seems to fit. So I got the script and I auditioned and, um, and got the part after going through all the network uh, tests and all the meetings and all this stuff. Always thinking, wow, this is kind of, uh, well, I'm you know, i going to pursue this as long as I can, but I've still got this other contract. So basically, I got the show and went back to the company and said, look, here's the deal. I just got a television show. I don't know how it's going to last, but you can't pay for that kind of advertising. Right. I'm going to be a lot more recognizable and be a lot more valuable. And I said, if you had to this contract now, it would cost you twice as much. So they said, great. And by the time we had done, I don't know, half a season and they were waiting on me to fulfill this contract, the whole industry changed, and they no longer needed my services, and they, they paid me off and let me go. Oh, you're kidding. Wow. No, it was the best of both worlds.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You so often hear examples of people who have the opposite experience, you know.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got screwed both ways, yeah. but no, uh, in this case, it worked out fine. And, and as a matter of fact, I, I've never told this to anybody, but... Uh, my, my first house was actually mortgaged on the contract that I'd taken to the bank to say, look, I've got this money coming in. Oh. Would you give me a loan for this house? And they said, absolutely. Well, that contract was null and void by the time I moved into the oh, house. Oh, man. But we still got the loan.
0: So. Oh, that's, well, yikes. That's lucky. Wow. that's 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 great. Now, you first appeared in the seventh episode of the show. Oh, yes, indeed. Had yes, the indeed. show been on prior to when you did the audition?
1: No. No, okay. they, they had not aired. In fact, uh, I had done, uh, I want to say four or five shows as the character Chuck and Bob before it did air. Oh, okay. They started early and, and there were, the pilot was in the can. It was, it had already been, um, labeled, uh, a very controversial show. Right. And a lot of churches were against it before it had even aired. Right. And we, at the time we were not allowed to talk to the press. We couldn't have any interviews and, uh, there was a blackout on any information. And, um, so by the time it aired, I was very much a part of, of that uh, cast and that uh, operation going on over there.
0: Right, right. Now, did the controversy affect you at all personally? Did you ever feel any pressure from it?
1: I can't say that I that I did. Other than there, there were a few very fundamental little uh, fundamentalist relatives of mine who were uh, very born again that thought uh, that I should do anything but that evil show and. Uh, I think one of my cousins even went on to become a preacher and might have, uh, you know, in his day told me that I was going to hell to do it. But but I don't remember, I mean, a hit show is a hit show, and it was certainly... Oh, absolutely. Um, that, so whatever whatever downside was it that people would say, oh, it's nasty and, and all, whatever it is, was certainly uh, compensated by the other side of the coin.
0: Did you Do you recall at all if the controversy um, died off at all? Because obviously... A lot of the controversy arose from what people thought were, was going to be in the show right. without right. even having seen it or actually known the specifics of what it was going to be about.
1: It did. It did die down. Absolutely. After the pilot uh, aired and people saw it, um, it they, I think there was still a campaign. Um, back then, the religious right was not as well organized, and they tried to close down our sponsors. They went after the sponsors and right. said, if you sponsor that show, we're not going to watch. And at the time, it sort of had the opposite effect. it advertisers said wow geez we're we're actually getting a little uh, notice here and so it, it actually encouraged them to buy our show but,
0: and uh, to stick with it
1: yeah the, the weirdest thing to me about the opening of soap in that that pilot episode first of all the pilot was an hour and so it for the process of, of airing it was split into two 30 minute segments that that uh, aired over two different right ones. right so the first pilot was really just the setup for what was happening in the second half of the show and so it was really kind of odd you know to see it that way it just really kind of stopped but at the time uh, bob segren was playing uh, the love interest to jody dallas uh, uh, the billy crystal's gay character right. and he had a fabulous house in beverly hills and he had everybody over and televisions everywhere to watch the pilot episode and the uh, Freddie Silverman, head of ABC, was there, and all the directors, all the people, everything was great. It was quite a party. And so the pilot came on, and we all watched. Of course, we've seen that tape thousands of times before. Right. And we, we all kind of cheered at the end, and then um, the news comes on, because they aired it late enough that the news came on right after our show. And then Jerry Dumphy, who was the local newscaster, had a priest, a rabbi, and a, a religious um, person on a panel. And the first thing he said on the top of the news was, well, you've seen it. What do you think? And this buzz at the party suddenly went, wait, hold hold, 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 hold a minute. They're talking, they're talking about our show on the news. Right. And there's a bunch of preachers going, well, I thought it was terrible. Another guy. And I didn't see the wrong with it. And it dawned on me that, that this, this was much too important. Uh, they were making so much more about this than it was. It was just a television show. Everybody was celebrating, but now it's a news item. This it didn't seem right. You know, just another show.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It just you know, um, in retrospect, I mean, it was you know, it was obviously you know pushing a few boundaries here and there. But
1: well, we did, we did, and and you know, it, it, but back then, when you think about the boundaries, geez, they were <laughs> they were made out of, uh, of of chicken wire. Yeah. One of the things we got to do was say the word "horny." We got the word "horny" on the air, which had never been said on television That's right. before. Now you think about what's being said on on Sopranos this you know, this last season or so. Oh, absolutely. That seems pretty stupid. Yeah.
0: Um, so in the series, you played Chuck Campbell, the son of mm-hmm. Richard Mulligan's character, who is a right. ventriloquist who essentially had kind of a schizophrenic relationship with his wooden partner, Bob, and felt that he absolutely. was real. Um, and
1: made everybody else treat him as real. That was the key. Absolutely. As as that Chuck thought he was real. He, he insisted that people believe in the reality of Bob, which confused everybody. And, and
0: pulled a number of people in. From oh, yeah. And, I, and that was
1: really the, the beauty of the show was it's one thing to to um, kind of think about that character as a joke that, that the ventriloquist thinks is real. But when you have great actors that are participating in the phenomenon, not only with their skills, but because it's written, right. it, it, it was just wonderful.
0: Right. So, yeah. So and Chuck obviously was very quiet and Bob was, well, outspoken and downright nasty and, and, yeah, and right. got to say essentially some of the most uh, the funniest bits on the show.
1: Um, it was fun.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and essentially one of the most popular characters on the show. I mean, there was obviously Benson was very popular, but you know, Chuck and Bob were incredibly popular so much so that you're even on the cover of, uh, at least a couple of the DVD sets. <laughs> I no,
1: know, I know. And you know, one of those, uh, one of those pictures, uh, that's on the, the DVD cover is is not a soap-set picture, which is mostly what they've used. This was one of the publicity pictures we had at the time that was just happened to be the era, because I don't know that at the time they took the pictures that are on the cover, they even took a picture of Chuck and Bob, you know, at the time.
0: Right, right. A, well, and plus, you know, they didn't do that many color photos, I think, at the time either.
1: No, this is, we're talking, as my kids remind me, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah,
0: so. yeah, no, absolutely. Chuck and Bob were one of the few characters on the show that didn't have any kind of ongoing storyline. I mean, they certainly had the storyline of their little dysfunctional relationship, but they didn't actually, you know, get a love interest or anything like that. Was anything like that ever discussed? Well,
1: it it certainly was an issue for me when I was playing the part, because the the characters of Chuck and Bob, like a lot of characters that came through Soap, were originally just supposed to be on for seven episodes and be written out, because... Uh, we were, at the time in the original Bible, to be the killer of Peter Campbell. And then once uh, it was determined who killed Peter Campbell and went to trial, I think there was a scene where Bob turns state's evidence against me, Chuck, and they both go to jail. That was the, And it was very funny. But they got such a mail pull and they got such interest in the character that as the season went on to make that uh, happen, they said, we just can't let that character go. So they came back and offered me a contract that would uh, make me uh, a regular on the show for the rest of the run, and obviously I took that. But I realized, watching other characters come in and go out, that the life on, on this show was all about what you get to do. Right. And the people that had a storyline would get to do more than the people who didn't have a storyline. So I was always going into the producers saying, look, what is there a storyline for Chuck and Bob? And they would say, as soon as we finish this baby episode with Jody, we're going to do that. Right. And the next time they would finish that, I'd say, well, as soon as Richard gets back from the, um, from the alien spacecraft, then we're going to do it. And, and after a year and a half, I realized there was always going to be something they had to get to before checking and Bob. Right. So my way of staying on the show was to, to go into the producers uh, every time, uh, at least once, twice a year, and have a whole list of, of bits that I could do just ideas of what Chuck and Bob might be able to do that they wouldn't think of, like roller skating or, um, you know, Billy and I came up with an idea of we, we hide uh, Bob in a refrigerator, yes. of what would Chuck do yes. and how would they do it? That was that was one of the things that Billy and I suggested, hey, what about it? And they would write those into the show. And looking back, that's how I stayed for the four years of the show was, was stuff that uh, I would submit 20 things, maybe four of them to get on, but that would be four more uh, ideas that they wouldn't have had for me. and um so yeah, I was. I wished I'd had a. I wished I'd had a storyline. But then, all the storylines that they had on soap played out eventually. Yes. And then they got even. Even Billy Crystal's character went from from gay to not so gay to getting married to eventually ended up a, a old man, Jewish man that he. You know. In his regressed life. Yeah. Yeah. So. In hindsight, I'm really glad they never gave Chuck and Bob a, a storyline because it could have impacted the characters, it could have played out, it could have gone the wrong way, and they could have said, you know what, it's not working anymore. So, right, right. Um, I, was, I was glad to be that clown that, you know, gets on the ring, does his bit, the whistle blows for the remaster, have the real act, and we got off. Right, you know? right. That was right.
0: the best way for me. But, well, but alongside the characters like um, Arthur Peterson's playing the major and exactly. Robert Guillaume playing Benson... You guys had the funniest lines. People remember you probably, you know, the most of most of the characters anyway. And I think you're exactly correct. You know, you didn't over you didn't wear out your welcome, whereas some of the characters at a certain point, you kind of felt like, okay, I've seen Chester fooling around a lot. I've seen this. Okay, And where where are they going to go now? And ultimately, in some cases, the storylines just kind of petered out. And, and I and I suspect in some cases the actors left. Absolutely, you know. So um,
1: there was some. <laughs> this may be telling tales out of school, but at this point, you know, that's all right. Most of the principals have passed away. <laughs> the, the fact is that there was a storyline, and and I won't use a I won't use an exact name because there would be too right on. But there was a storyline that was set to continue for one of the uh, the Tate sisters, and uh, this love interest was coming in, and and we all saw the Bible. We all saw it was going and how the Ark and how this character was going to interact and do all this stuff and everything, and so one Monday morning when we come to work and we get the script, uh, his character is in, and basically there's a there's a scene with he and, and um, uh, Eunice, and basically he walks into uh, Eunice's house and says Eunice I'm leaving goodbye and walks out and that's the entire his entire participation in the show that week oh. and he's gone, his character is gone. Oh. So I see him at a, a liquor store as I'm going home. <laughs> He's like, he looks like, uh, you know, uh, you know, the guy from uh, Leaving Las Vegas just filling his cart with stuff, right. you know, Nicholas Cage doing all this stuff. And so I walked up to him and I said, uh, uh, wow, who knew that uh, they were going to get rid of the, the, the character? Jeez, that's such a shock. And he said, no more shocking to me. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I had no idea. And he said, and as he's putting liquor in his, his basket, he says, never fool around with the head writer. Never. And he walked away. So obviously oh. something had happened over the weekend oh. that, that they didn't get along. And that next day he was out.
0: Bye-bye.
1: So with all of that hanging over your head, you know, it was a kind of a minefield that you wanted to walk through to get just the right thing on the air or you know, tick them off and, and they would love to shoot you dead in a scene, you know? Yeah,
0: no, absolutely. Absolutely. And add a little more ratings and well, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, again, you know, Chuck and Bob laying under the radar, stepping in for the (laughs) jokes (laughs) and you made it for four years. I mean, that's, that's amazing. It is amazing. And I had a great
1: time doing it. You know, it was just, it was always great fun to, to be down there and, and work with, uh, as you say, uh, some of the great people uh, that went on to do other things, you know, it's just amazing to watch these people work. And I learned so much from uh, every one of them. Yeah.
0: Now, the Museum of Television and Radio had kind of a, a soap reunion tribute, so to speak. And Jay Sandrich, one of the series' main directors, mentioned a story that at one point there was a little bit of a miking sound problem with Chuck and Bob. Oh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, uh, again, that's one of the stories I, I'm delighted to tell in, in my Broadway show. Um, there was an issue at one point of Bob's voice not recording well. It didn't sound right. They were having questions about it. and it was, it, it was an issue. And they really didn't know if this was a phenomenon of ventriloquism or this was a phenomenon of something else. They really didn't know. So they kind of come to me and they asked me, some questions about ventriloquism, how does it work, what do you do, throwing your voice, is it really coming from somewhere else? And, and I really didn't know how to answer because I was, right. again, worried that this meant I was going to be written off tomorrow. Um, but eventually what they found out was that uh, the, the sound man up, up on that little, um, that little boom that's turning the microphone was putting the microphone in front of me when I had a line, and he was turning the microphone to Bob when Bob had a line. So every time they turned the mic... The sound would dip, and it would sound weird, and they didn't know why. They finally figured it out, and we went on. But uh, uh, he absolutely bought the reality of Bob so much he was miking him, you know. So.
0: Now on the so on the set, uh, kind of following that line, um, did you ever have any fun with Bob potentially talking to guests on the set, or or you know, just having a little fun? Well, I mean, it seems like too good of a talent not to abuse in some way.
1: Yeah, and, and I, I always want to be very careful that you don't put people at odds with what's going on. So I sure. I, I always knew where the line was that uh, I can see it in your eyes, uh, you know, irritated. And, and for the most part, Bob came to the set in a suitcase. He came out for a scene and he went back in after that scene and, and did not stay around very long. But now in a taping, you, you really are called upon to do that scene over and over again. And, and there's no time when you're really, if you're doing the scene, you're doing it. So Bob was out a lot. So... When the audience was there, Bob really did uh, take on the audience, and some of the outtakes of, uh, you know, just while the mic was rolling while we were doing stuff, um, I remember as being a lot of fun and having a great time. And and then the the guest actors would get into it and they would give Bob crap and Bob would give them back crap in the in the breaks and it, it was like a performance. It was like a, a good time. But um, but I tried not to make people uncomfortable. Right. Um, the the reason that Jay Sandrich wanted to hire me in the first place was to have that reality going on in the set because he thought actors had to react to reality rather than getting somebody in and later looping the voice and it didn't happen in real time. and uh, Sure. So, again, that was the balance of how much of that you do as opposed to how much of that pisses people off and you don't get the work from everybody that you need. you know Right, so.
0: right. Well, at the reunion, they all, as soon as you know your name came up, everybody in the cast started to smile and laugh and you could tell that there were nice memories going through their minds in terms of you know Bob and and um, you and Bob on and offset. So uh, yeah. we had
1: a great time. And one one of the wonderful things about soap is that there was it was a large cast. I think on a on a given week we had thirteen characters in the show. Yeah, and that's enough to form uh, clicks within the click. You know, sure. So there was uh, uh, Diana Canova and myself and um, Ted and Diane. Um, Gosh, I can't think of her name. She played Elaine Lefkowitz, and she went on to become...
0: Oh, what? Uh, Dina Manoff.
1: Thank you, Dina Manoff. I, I could not remember her name for a moment, and she was a wonderful, wonderful friend. Rebecca Balding, who played Jody's wife. Anyway, right. we were all about the same age and and much younger at the time than all the, the uh, regulars, uh, older regulars in the show. So we kind of formed our own little cult and our own little clique and had a great time. You know, We, we had some fun. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, can I... Play a little name association with you, and if you'd give me sure, your... Sure, absolutely. Okay, um, absolutely. Richard Mulligan.
1: Richard Mulligan was one of the funniest guys you ever wanted to see on screen, and one of the most intense people off that you ever want to meet. The comedy that Richard had came from this intense work ethic as an actor, and those bits that seemed so spontaneous yeah. and so uh, so organic were studied, rehearsed, organized, timed, uh, lit. The fuses lit at exactly the right moment, and I guess what I saw in Richard was um, an, uh, a comedian who was not necessarily naturally funny, but one that could eventually find the timing that made anything funny mm-hmm. just by working
0: it. Mm-hmm. One of those, one of those performers, kind of along the lines of like a Lucille Ball, because that's all I've heard about her is yeah. that she she wasn't naturally funny, but she worked it and worked it and worked it.
1: Yeah, um, I, I I would think that they would be similar.
0: Uh, Catherine Damon.
1: Catherine Damon was, uh, always kind of a mystery to me. She, she played my stepmother and in terms of the script, she kept that even off stage. She kept a little bit of a distance between me and my character. I think because she was a very serious method actress. And I think she thought that getting too close to me might impact the way she felt. And she was really nice to me, but, but I never felt the closeness that I would feel towards some of the people like Catherine Hellman and, uh, Dee Dee and Diane and some of the other people, um, and she was always a mystery to me because her nickname was Skipper, and yes. she had been on Broadway. And anybody that had been in New York on Broadway uh, had this kind of uh, mystique about them that uh, you didn't want to you didn't want to get too friendly with them because they were too they were a different breed.
0: Right, know? right, sure. Um, Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal was one of the few
1: people that I knew, not personally, but I knew of before I got onto the set because he had. Been a comedian, and he'd been on maybe the Tonight Show a couple of times, and I'd seen him work. So, and um, again, watching him work was was incredible. M- my regret is that for a while Billy was really attempting to, like I was, keep the the action going in the in the in the story, and the scene that we did together, I mentioned before about the the refrigerator scene, yeah. which still is one of my favorite things to have ever played. Um, that was. That, that was a conversation between us trying to write it together. It was his idea, I said, here's what I could do with it. And I think he went into that and he had suggested three or four things and wanted um, a writer's credit, just to say additional information, additional writing by. Yeah. And they said, no, no, nobody, nobody writes the show, but uh, Susan, you know, that's really the writer of the show. Right. And I think that upset him enough uh, that, that he did not participate in, in those ideas anymore. And so, you know, that just limited an area that we could, uh, we could have fun together. Right. You know, unfortunately.
0: Right. Well, you worked uh, mo- most of your scenes seemed to be opposite him or, or a good amount of them anyway. So
1: I did do a lot of scenes with Billy. Yeah. And you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say that, that we were as close as, uh, uh, closer than anybody on the set. I think it was close to other people. And I'm not saying that the, it was easy to work with Billy. Um, but I would say that about any comedian because, the ego of a comedian that's trying to get that laugh. And if you get it and he does it, right. you know, there's a competition. There. Sure. And that was definitely felt. And sometimes I, I felt like that, uh, that was a little too intense and let's lighten up and just get through the show. But, uh, um, you know, you, you can't argue with a guy's work ethic. You really can't. A guy that wants to be the best and do the best. You have to say fabulous, do it.
0: You yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And at the same time, I'm sure he was dealing with some pressure, playing somebody who was gay and that was oh yeah oh, absolutely
1: new. i mean the, the one thing that that uh, uh i always think about when we were doing this is that i would go out on the street and somebody would yell, it's chuck and bob where's bob where's bob and i have to deal with that i've been there when people yelled out there's the f- there's the fruit on soap hey 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 well Ooh. you know you're with your kids you're with well, that's a whole different perception right <laughs> of, of how you deal with your fame and uh so yeah, I understand uh, with Billy, and I and I I think that he's uh, certainly proven his worth and his um, you know his staying ability by and his talents.
0: So. Oh gosh, yeah, um, Ted Wass. Ted was the first
1: person that I met when I when I got to to the set of soap. I got there early to check out the puppet that they'd give me. They're going to play Bob, and Ted was in the office doing something. And they said, "This is uh, Ted Wass. He's going to play Danny, your stepbrother." Da 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 da. And, and we just immediately hit it off. I mean, just immediately, he was one of the nicest people you ever want to meet. He was just genuine. He was the heartthrob of the show. Every girl was in love with with uh, Ted, and it was just it was just great. He really did become um, sort of an older step brother to me immediately. And I, I'm probably older than him, but he he really took on a role that was that was very kind to that's me.
0: That's great. That's that's really nice. Um, Catherine Helmand.
1: Catherine Hellman and I share this wonderful uh, roots of, of, of Texas heritage. I think she grew up in Galveston, and I grew up in Dallas-Fort Worth. Then. So there's something about Texas people that when they get together, the rest of the world can be damned. We're, you know, Texans <laughs> are going to survive, you know. And I just, I loved her from the very beginning. Um, Bob had some unkind comments or, or some funny comments about her physique, which was quite ample and still is. Right. Um, And, you know, that can make uh, an uncomfortable situation when after the line is done, you kind of go, you know, uh, Catherine, I'm I'm so sorry. We have to nothing about that. She was just really cool about it Um, in her Jessica kind of moments when she would come over and touch Bob and and participate in Bob's reality, both on and off screen. It was just wonderful. It was just just something that uh, that I look back on going, wasn't that a special moment?
0: Yeah, Catherine Hellman. She's her character was definitely one of those characters on the show that you could easily believe that she'd buy into the, the Chuck Bob yeah. reality yeah. and not have any problem with it. Just, oh, well, you know, he's just a little short and wooden, but, you know, he's a nice guy. Yeah.
1: And, and you know, she she she's such a wonderful actress and she's such a, a gifted actress and had such you know, dramatic background. Uh, and then to be able to play that part of, of Jessica and um, be the person she was, she, she was. Was and still is a delight to be around.
0: Uh, Robert Mandan.
1: Robert Mandan is, is still one of my closest friends ever, and I see him. Uh, I just saw him yesterday, and I will probably have uh, lunch or coffee with him in the next couple of days. Oh, that's we wonderful. Probably don't go a week without you know seeing each other, or talking to each other, and I, you know you just you just find a friend uh, that that stays with you uh, for the rest of your life. Sometimes, and that's Bob Mandan. He is. Uh, practically godfather to my kids because he's watched them grow up and they think of him the same way and he makes me laugh we've had so many times out at restaurants that that would make us laugh and that we think back and i have so many stories about bob uh and, and his wife sherry they they just are so close and and i i think the world of them and uh sometimes i forget that we were friends and and met on soap because it just seems like we've always been friends
0: oh that's wonderful that's that's really nice um Robert Guillaume.
1: <laughs> Robert Guillaume. I loved uh, uh, Bob Guillaume, and still do. And uh, the last time that um, Diana Canova was in town, she lives in New Hampshire. She came into town, and and myself and Bob Mandan went out to the to the actors' um, uh, screen actors' home where uh, Robert is living after he had a little minor stroke. Right. And, and we just sat down, uh, another friend of ours, Marsha uh, Posey-Williams, who was one of the producers who has the gag reel from the show. We took the gag reel out to, to Bob and uh, we sat down in, in his uh, living room and put that tape on and laughed and giggled and thought. And um, he's just a delightful man. And what a wonderful foil to play against for a character of Chuck and Bob because he took no crap from anybody, Absolutely. particularly a wooden puppet, you know? And to to have that relationship with with uh, an actor that uh, you know the minute they put us in a scene we're going to knock this out of the park you know and um, he's just a lovely lovely man and um, you know I I miss him as well
0: where, where is he uh, where is Jessica was so easily pulled into the Bob, uh, Chuck and Bob reality Benson you could just tell he was so grounded that there was no chance. <laughs>
1: absolutely now and um, the, the the wonderful thing and the unfortunate thing is that after uh, maybe a year maybe two um, Benson becomes so hot they give him his own show, and he's now we don't see him anymore we have we have saunders we have uh you know uh, all the other characters that come in to replace him but right we don't have uh, Guillaume anymore and uh, he was he was such a bad boy on the set sometimes um, he would i remember that um there was a time in the script where you're kind of working out the blocking and Jay Sandridge who I absolutely adore he uh, he is saying okay the doorbell rings and um, and he just kind of said that all right we're here and the doorbell rings and nothing happened but Guillaume looked over at Jay Sandridge and as if to say y- you want the black man to go to the door he said right. do you want me to answer that and we all laughed hysterically because it, it was you know the intent was ah, i'm not going to do that but they loved it so much that they wrote it into the show, and that became his catchphrase. Every time the doorbell rang, he would look at it and go, do you want me to get
0: that? Exactly, sure.
1: And that was so much of Guillaume's uh, uh, bad boy character in real life, it, it was great that it came through.
0: Did um, did the show feel any kind of hit after, um, did, it, did it, how do I say this, did it feel, uh, lose any steam or anything after they spun his character off? Because he was such a strong presence in the beginning, but then I imagine by the time he left, the show was really, I think, kind of in its heyday, I mean, in one of its strongest seasons.
1: Well, what, what happens, I think Benson was uh, like the uh, Fonzie of the show at first. Yes. I think everybody tuned into him, and it's hard to lose a Fonzie. But like you say, by the time they spun him off to Benson some of the other characters were finding their own i think uh, richard mulligan's character uh, bert was coming into his own and i think there were a lot of characters that suddenly kind of were able to take up the slack but yeah you miss uh, you miss uh, uh, his presence you miss his, his uh, stories you miss him just being around the set you know right. so the the impact of him being gone personally was almost as uh, devastating as uh, it might have been for the for the show
0: right right now, you said you were close with uh, Diana Canova?
1: I love DD. I love DD. I think there was one time when um, ABC had some tickets to go see something. I, I, I've been married since I was, you know, 20 years old, so I've been married all my life that I can remember. Right. But these, these tickets to see something that was happening in town were impossible to get. And Diana had two of them, and um, Sandy, my wife, was gone doing another job. And so Dee said, Do you want to go to this? And I said, Are you kidding me? Of course I would. So, as two friends, we go to some opening of some premiere, and somebody took a picture of that. And suddenly, we're having to explain to, uh, you know, uh, friends and neighbors and, and relationships that that was nothing more than us going to a show sure. together. But, you know, because we were such friends, we always liked each other, that it became one of those issues. But, uh, Diana was just um, the best. And when I got to New York and we had my show off-Broadway, she came to see it off-Broadway, she came to see it on-Broadway. We giggled and and had uh, a great time like we were, you know, 20 years old again.
0: Right, Uh, Jennifer Salt.
1: Jennifer Salt was uh, uh, wonderful. I didn't know, the only thing I knew about Jennifer when I got on the set, and I finally found that out, was that uh, she had been uh, Crazy Mary in um, Midnight Cowboy. That was her character. And Midnight Cowboy it seemed to change my life at the time. And suddenly, I went, oh, my God, it, it's it's the girl that played Crazy Mary. Oh, my God, she was like a, a huge star contemporary at the time. And um, I made some comment about John Voight or something uh, in reference to Midnight Cowboy. And she kind of looked at me askew, and she pulled me a, a later in, uh, aside, and she said, "Did what did you mean by that?" And I said, "I was just making a joke. I was just I was just making a joke." I don't, what, what do you mean? She said, "Oh, then you were referencing the fact that me and John had this thing going for." And I went, "No, hey, I have no idea. I won't say a, another word as long as I live." <laughs> so yeah, she was she was great. And, and another one that uh, you know you could sit off at the side of the set and, and talk for hours with uh, with Jennifer and. Uh, uh, then later, I guess I read the book you, "You'll Never Have a Lunch of This Out Again" by uh, uh, Phillips uh, Julia Phillips Julia Phillips, and 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 Jennifer's all the way through that book as her best friend. And I thought, oh, my God, I, I should have asked a lot more questions <laughs> than I had. To... Um, uh,
0: let's see, who else? Uh, Jimmy Bayo. Jimmy
1: Bayo, uh, what a, what a wonderful kid! I mean, I can't imagine a kid having the, the kind of uh, pressure of being the young actor on a show and going through kind of puberty. In, in front of everybody and still maintaining his absolute politeness and his absolute uh, uh, charm and, and and sweetness I mean uh, to this day uh, uh, I haven't seen Jimmy in a long time and don't know that I even know him because I knew him as a little boy, not a man right. but uh, such a charming charming kid and, and I thought he was very talented and I thought he um, he fit in very well to to uh, kind of bridge that gap between his generation and, and all the other generations that were represented on that set. Nice,
0: nice kid. And and I think at the time, he was also a bit of a heartthrob.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. It, it was always a, a competition, but, you know, you see how much fan mail uh, uh, Jimmy gets, and then you base your your own popularity <laughs> on, you know, the sliding scale from that. You know? So they would deliver it in buckets and, and bags, and, you know, they might give you a, a manila envelope and say, hey, here's yours, you know. Uh,
0: amazing, too, considering, I mean, the people who I who I would guess were his biggest fans I don't know what they were doing up at that hour of the night, or or watching. Soap. <laughs> I don't either, I don't
1: <laughs> and then of course he, his cousin was uh, Scott Bayo and so right Scott and and uh, Jimmy had this kind of competition as to who can uh, who can arouse the most uh, uh, little girl angst uh, in the in the family. Yeah, yeah. So it was very interesting to see that dynamic play out in their family.
0: Now uh, Arthur Peterson.
1: Arthur Peterson. The minute he walked on the set, a really nice guy and a really uh, um, accomplished actor. But the minute he got onto the set, he became the major. You didn't really talk to Arthur Peterson unless you saw him uh, off, off the set, because he just became the major. He just became that guy. Right. He would walk around going, uh-huh, yeah, absolutely, thank you, good, yeah, good. And so my memory of, of Arthur Peterson uh, is really wonderful but it's because it's that wonderful memory of the major, you know, sure, sure. Of, of of knowing him that way. And uh, he would always kind of look askew when Billy and Ted and I, and usually Diana and uh, uh, Dee Dee and everybody else, we, they, we would sort of mess around in a scene, and he wouldn't think that was quite kosher to mess with. The team, you know, <laughs> so. well, as a matter of fact, I got to I got to tell this about that. Please, um, the. Um, the, the group scenes that we used to do—we used to call them gangbang scenes. Everybody, both families, is in into one area. We used to do about three of those a year when the plot has to resolve or everybody gets together. Right. Well, every year before they went back on for the season, they would um, they would do a retro, retrospective. Yes. They would say, "Here's what happened. Here's what."
0: Kind happened. of bridge the summer. Well,
1: exactly. Uh, which was a great idea. Catch everybody up. We found out that every time you were seen, you, you, you just in the background of a, of a clip that they showed, you got 225 $225 from, from Arthur.
0: Wow, sweet. Because
1: in addition to whatever else you got, if you, if you were in that scene, you got another 225 So at one point in these group scenes, the reason Arthur would get so mad at us is that we would try everywhere in the world to wiggle into just being seen in the background <laughs> of a shot. And if you if you read the lips of the people, so particularly Billy and Ted and I and Diana and, and Jennifer, but if, if you can read the lips sometimes of the people in the back scene, somebody will come up to somebody and look like they're saying something and what we are saying to each other is two twenty five. Oh and we would know. We would laugh, we would get going down two twenty five and that that would be all we'd say and then we'd walk out of the scene. We knew that we had just made two hundred and twenty five bucks if they show that clip. So
0: Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> that's all and right. Arthur hated that. Arthur hated that,
1: because that, that's not professional, that's not, you don't walk into a shot. You know, Breaking <laughs>
0: character, the whole thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, actually, that might explain something, because on the DVD sets, those retrospectives are absent. Yes. They, they haven't put them in, So, and they really would help. I mean, they seem to be a natural on the DVD set. Yeah. You know, if you're buying the set three, it'd be nice to have the season two retrospective.
1: But, you would think so. I'm, I'm shocked by that, come to think about well,
0: it. Well, I wonder if, you know, the 225 <laughs> kind of carries they afford over. <laughs> like, geez, we can't put this out.
1: <laughs> I, you know, I, I have no idea what uh, sort of uh, uh, thoughts go through a producer's mind, but I'm sure that's one of them is how we can save here you in there. But, um, but yeah, th- those were always fun because most of the time in those scenes, you didn't have to learn any dialogue. You had to be there for the entire time. You basically were sitting back and... While everybody else is working, you're just, you know, telling stories and trying to get in the shot. There were always a lot of fun.
0: (laughs) That's great. Well, and those were some of the best scenes, or at least most memorable scenes of Soap, where, you know, where they'd all go over to the Tate house and for dinner. (laughs) And that's where we're going to stop with this edition of the podcast. Jay and I talked a whole lot more about Soap, including the show's surprise ending, some of his later work. The Strange Return of Chuck and Bob, and more. Be sure to tune in for that. It should be posted within the next week. If you'd like to hear more about Jay in the meantime, head on over to his website, monkeyjoke.com, or go to tvseriesfinale.com, and you can see some of the soap clips that we've got posted there. As always, I enjoy hearing from you. Either your feedback on the podcast, or if you have any questions. You can email me at podcast at tvseriesfinale.com or leave a message on our voicemail at 213-985-1014. If you'd like to receive these podcasts automatically, you can subscribe for free via iTunes or other podcast subscription software. If you like the show and would like to support it, please leave a review on iTunes or whatever podcast directory you happen to like. By doing this, you help promote the show and make it possible for more people to find it. And, of course, don't forget to visit tvseriesfinale.com for the latest cancellation news, past podcasts, videos, and details on the last episodes of your favorite shows. I'm your host, Trevor Kimball, and until next time, stay tuned.